Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Today we're tackling a subject that has been a uh, one of my primary preoccupations for a long, long time. I write about it at length in, in my book. It's been one of the central themes. Um, so the question is, how do you balance the drive for success with happiness? In other words, can you be a really ambitious person as I am, and I, I assume many of the listeners of this podcast are, while also being not crazy and, and having some degree of peace of mind? Are these two things, I think a lot of us assume that uh, these two things are at cross purposes, but my guest today argues that that assumption, whether it's conscious or subconscious, is actually dead wrong, that in fact, happiness and success are mutually supportive. And in fact, I think I think she would probably go so far as to say you can't have success or real success without some degree of happiness. But I'll let her speak for herself. Her name is Emma Seppala. Am I pronouncing that right? That's correct. Full title is Emma Seppala, PhD, and she's the science director of Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. By the way, if you may recall, uh, one of our recent guests was Thupten Jinpa, who also works for that center out of Stanford. And she's the author of an intriguing new-ish book uh, called The Happiness Track, which I just uh, listened to and is really, really good. And the central thesis, and I don't want to—I don't. I hope I'm not misstating this, is what I said before, that, that you— that you need happiness in order to succeed. It's not that the two are at cross purposes. That's correct. Um, first of all, thank you for inviting me today. Absolute pleasure. We just met. We've been in touch <laughs> on the phone and on email for months, but it's really nice to meet you in person. You too. And you're absolutely right. The book is about this misconception that we have that in order to be successful, uh, we need to postpone or sacrifice our happiness um, somehow. Uh, the two don't go together. And um, there's a story that I share about this, uh, about a Stanford student who came up to um, the co-leader of the happiness psychology of happiness class that we have at Stanford and said, I have to drop out of the class. And the you know my, my friend and my colleague said, well, why? And the student said, because it goes against everything I've ever learned. And then when she said, what do you mean? The student said, well, my parents told me that in order to be successful, I have to work very hard. Um, and when I asked, you know, how do I know if I'm working hard enough, they said, when you're suffering. <laughs> and so there's this misconception, and you see it, and I saw it so much in Silicon Valley, just looking around. There's so much exciting stuff happening, and yet people are burning themselves into the ground, whether it's at Stanford or at Yale, the students I was working with. On the one hand, they were brilliant, doing amazing things. On the other hand, there was pain there. It's a pain point. And I just spoke at um, Google the other day, and really saw, you know, remembered why I wrote this book in the first place, because here are these incredible people doing amazing things, and yet there's this pain um, that you can see from the burnout. And across industries, we see 50% burnout. doesn't matter what industry you're working for. That's the average. Um, and we're also seeing that 70% of the U.S. workforce is disengaged. So that goes to show that there is a crisis going on, and what we're doing is not working. So here's the question I always ask at the beginning, which is, how did you come to meditation? Well, the first time was in college, <laughs> and uh, I was at Yale, and it was a pretty stressful place, and um, I was really shy, and I had a crush on this guy that I didn't <laughs> know very well, but I, someone told me he goes to meditation, 
So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I went to a um, this meditation class, which was very austere. It was one hour, stare at the floor. Uh, it was a Korean Zen. Oh, I was going to say Zen, yeah. Yeah, very intense for an 18-year-old. That's, you know, and I came out of there thinking, I'm never going to do this again. And the next day I felt amazing. And so that was the beginning of my, I never da- ended up dating that guy, but I ended up a long <laughs> love affair with meditation. Why, let me just stop you for a second. Why do you think you felt amazing the next day? Well, I'll tell you, this is quite a personal story, but I struggled with an eating disorder at the time. Mm. And what I would do often is I would binge and then I would cry. And um, that next day, uh, I came back to my room feeling, you know, not so good and in that mood to binge. And there was a pizza sitting there. And uh, all of a sudden, this light bulb came up in my head and said, why don't you cry first? And then you can binge as much as you want. And so I did that. And when I was done crying, I didn't want to binge. Mm. So it was very enlightening for a you know 18-year-old kid, really, to see, wow, I sat for an hour yesterday. And now today, that was, I would say that was the end of my eating disorder. Wow. Um, I can really and honestly say that that was the end. Now, I'm not advocating that this can help anyone with addiction overnight um, the way it did me. But it, it gave me that sense of that, wow, there's a way to attain a freedom from my own Impulses and more clarity and awareness of my emotions and what's going on. Yeah, so, you know, people ask me all the time. You know, because I often tell my story in a yeah. truncated form. People ask me, so, so you use meditation and stop doing drugs? And, uh, and the answer is no, I didn't. I think that meditation is, and it's right there in AA. Um, they they recommend prayer and meditation. I think mm-hmm. meditation is extremely useful, um, but it should be one of many things when you're fighting addiction. Yes. I think it's it should be just one of many things when you're. Uh, striving to be a happier person. It's not a panacea. Anyway, that was my long interruption of your otherwise extremely compelling story. So (laughs) keep going. What happened next? So what happened next was I went to China for two years after college um, and did all sorts of random things. But while I was there, I also still continued to be the anxious teenager that I had been before. And I got to rent an apartment with this elderly Chinese gentleman who was by far the happiest person I had ever met in my life. Mm. And he had been through the Cultural Revolution as a professor. He'd been sent to the fields where there was starvation. He'd lost his wife in the process. He had had a hard life. There was no doubt. And yet he was in bliss. Like I would just just being around him, you felt uplifted. And he would look at me and I'd have these stressed stomach aches and and he would tell me, hey, you know, just go sit on the sofa, look at the bamboo, breathe. You know, it was a very informal way of telling me to meditate, but I could see this peace inside of him. And I thought, wow, like that's something I want more of. So he wasn't telling me to sit in lotus or do anything formal, but there was that meditation was in the air in the elderly Chinese people that I'd met who'd been through a lot of traumatic situations, but somehow had come through with this very light spirit despite it all. And so when I came back, I did a master's in um, East Asian studies at Columbia with Uma Thurman's dad, Buddha Bob. Bob, uh, Bob Thurman, Thurman, yes, I want him on the podcast. He's phenomenally yes, entertaining, yes, yes. insightful, and amazing. You know, I took his intro to Buddhism class, and I felt like I'm a convert. That's it. This is it. And he just flipped my way of seeing everything. Um, and yet, as I was preparing to even go and maybe do a PhD in religion with him, one day one of the students in the class said something to him, said, Bob, you know, you talk about compassion, but sometimes you you can be a little stern with people or you talk about no ego, but do you live that? And Bob was incredible in his reply. He said, you know what? I don't have time to practice. And that changed my life because I realized I'm not going to go and do a PhD in religion. I'm not going to argue about Tibetan translations of this or that text. This is not about this is not an intellectual exercise. I have to practice. And that's when I 
went all over New York to every meditation teacher I could find, yogic tradition, Hindu tradition, Buddhist tradition, Tibetan tradition, whatever you name it, and tried to find what worked for me. And that was the beginning of um, of my realization that this is something I have to experience and live, not just something that is going to be an intellectual exercise. So between the, the moment with the pizza and the crying and the moment where Buddha Bob admitted that he didn't have time to practice, were you practicing or was it for that whole period of time an intellectual uh, pursuit? It was... I had never had an instructor, really. So I w- it was very informal. In China, I tried to practice, but I never had any. So it was here and there, huh. here and there. And it was yoga. And I'd been doing a lot of yoga in New York. But I realized that yoga is great, but it only takes you so far in terms of that piece that I was looking for, that insight that I was looking for. So you went around, you did a little taste test at the uh, contemplative yeah. cafeteria here in New York City. And where did you land? Well, one place right learned a practice that really helped me was um, through the Art of Living workshop. But it was started by an Indian guru called Tree Free Ravi Shankar. And so here I was in this workshop and I was thinking, gosh, I really want you know to learn from a Tibetan master. I'd been told the Tibetan masters, I was persuaded that was the way to go. And here's, I did the, the that more Hindu, more yoga-based um, breathing practice, meditation practice. And I realized it really worked for me. So I always tell people to you know find the shoe that fits because I had struggled with mindfulness. I found it really hard. I found it very, um, for me, it raised a lot of anxiety. And maybe because I already had an anxious temperament, it really helped to take a different approach that worked better for me, the breathing. Um, so what is, can you just describe for me yeah. in the most basic terms, what is that practice, the it's Shri a, Shri uh, um, Ravi Shankar? Yeah, the practice that's taught through his workshop, it's also called the happiness I think it's called the Happiness Program through the Art of Living Foundation. They teach um, a combination of pranayama, which are basic yogic breathing exercises, um, with something called Sudarshan Kriya, which is a Sanskrit term, uh, which is like rhythmic breathing for a certain period of time. And then you get a home practice that's about 20 minutes. And when I did that, I finally felt like I can really meditate now. My so mind was what do you do for like, those 20 minutes? Just do different breathing exercises. Like what? Um, in breathing in different rhythms. It's hard for me to explain. So first with pranayama. I mean, pranayama you might have done in a yoga class. Um, I've taken a few yoga classes. Uh, uh, yeah. So one example is of a pranayama you might do in a yoga class is called ujjayi breath, which is, um, in fact, I can do it right here into the microphone so people can hear. It goes like this. Kind of like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, you'll notice if you take a yoga class, they might ask you to breathe like yes. that. So on the movement you do, you kind of yeah. time it to the movement. Yeah. So that's one of the exercises. And then there's um, a bunch of different ones in a, in, that you do in a row. And then the, the Sudarshan Kriya is breathing in different uh, rhythms. So, you know, like a fast rhythm and a medium rhythm. And all gui- it's, it's guided when you do it. And so but your practice now is 20 minutes a day of that? Well, I do that, but I meditate twice a day as well. But what I was saying was that the, I only was able to meditate after being able to calm myself uh, with that practice. Gotcha. So it's kind of an intro to, for me, it was a way to settle everything so that I could actually meditate. So when you say I meditate too, what do you mean by that? Uh, I do. I have a mantra meditation that I do twice a day for 20 minutes. And is that also a Hindu meditation? Yeah. It's not TM, but it's also through Sri Sri Ravi Shankar's um, teachings. So you're doing... 
two 20-minute mantra-based meditations a day and then also- 20 minutes. And then also doing the 20-minute breathing. So that's 60 minutes a day. I try to do 12 sun salutations a day, too. That's about all I can fit in with a baby. Uh, well, so we both have one-year-olds. Um, yeah, exactly uh, the same age, in fact. Yeah, uh, what, what was... December 9th. Oh, wow. So I know. So it's like a six-day difference. I know. I think my son is six <laughs> days younger than your son. What's your son's name? Michael Andrew. Michael Andrew. Mine is Alexander. Is because Alexander is like a terrible person and uh, <laughs> just. Um, I mean, he's a. Uh, I'm kidding, but he's a. He's like really testing his parents and and look. His latest move is this. Um, he'll walk out in the morning and. Um, put his hand on the electrical sockets and look around for people to freak out. And then if you don't freak out enough for him to be pleased, he will put his mouth on the, <laughs> on the electric sockets. And I look at this and I say, that's me. Like That is the type of person I am. I like to, to piss people off. And that's my son funny. is a karmic torpedo headed at my cabeza. Anyway, <laughs> I, I digress again. But I, I wonder, when you, we both, you have a one-year-old at home, how do you mm. carve out 60 minutes a day by my math of meditation, mm-hmm. breathing, and then 12 sun salutations on top of it all? Well, I'm lucky. I First thing in the morning, my husband takes the baby. So mm-hmm. I have um, okay. that you know, 40, 45 minutes of time to quickly do what I need to do before I take over. The next 20 minutes, I'll sometimes have to do right before sleep or I'll do it um, in the evening when my husband comes home. Um, I've noticed that if when I do it, I'm just a better mom, I'm a better person. I'm a happier person. I'm a calmer person. I mean, you know how it is when you meditate. One of your pieces of advice for being a happier parent is actually to uh, be selfish. Mm. And that sounds a little bit like what you were just saying. Yeah, I think, you know, the... The impulse is to just take care of this little being. That's our priority in life. We have to. And yet, if it comes so so much that it's a cost to yourself, it actually removes from your ability to take care of them to the best of your ability. So that's why it's important, for example, to carve out that time to meditate so that I can be there for him. And this morning, even, I was meditating, and I was feeling so much longing and yearning to hold him. And... Um, it just made me all that much more loving when I actually went to the kitchen and finally got to hold him. But I Does also... he let you hold him? Mine squirms away or smacks me. <laughs> I, he's my biggest fan right now, which is great for my self-esteem. Oh, awesome. okay. <laughs> um, but I, and I've been traveling a lot for the book, and I think that makes him even more um, wanting to have me around. So we are really close right now. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to enjoy it while it lasts because I don't know how long it will last. <laughs> So how would that translate to other parents? Um, Mm -hmm. Yes. What would be the move in terms of being wisely selfish? Yeah. I would just say do whatever it is that helps you be your best person, that helps you feel good and be happy. Because whether that's, you know, going to play basketball with your friends or whether that's taking taking some time out to take a bubble bath or whatever it is, go to the movies or get your nails done. I mean, whatever rocks your boat and that puts you into a frame of mind and a state of mind where you can be your best self, um, do that. You know, we all have five minutes here or there. How are you using the five minutes before bed? Let's say you put your baby in bed and then you have a little bit of time. What are you choosing to do? Are you choosing to be on Facebook? Is that nurturing you? What are The choices that you're making, are they fundamentally nurturing you? Are you watching the news right before bed and is that putting... A lot of bad. I will of, not have you speak ill of the news no. in this podcast. <laughs> but Go whatever ahead. it is that you do, just look in to yourself. That you are making choices every day for how to use your time. Is it nurturing you and putting you into a state of mind that that makes you feel optimal? That makes you feel like you're at your best self. That's what I would say. The very good advice. Um, is your baby sleeping? Because the last time I spoke to you, your your kid was not <laughs> sleeping at all. 
He's sleeping more now. I'm really grateful. Yeah. But not sleeping through the night. No, he's sleeping through the night now. Not sleeping as much as people say they're supposed to sleep, but I'm just grateful for what we've got. So we're happy. Because that can literally drive you crazy. It it has. Thank you. <laughs> you don't seem crazy right now. No, because I've been sleeping the last couple of months, primarily because I've also been sleeping in a separate room and my husband's on duty. Um, so that if he he's wakes in the military. Oh, your husband's on duty overnight. Yeah, he's no longer in the military, but he's <laughs> he's on duty overnight with the baby now. Okay, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. correct. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about the book, The Happiness Track. So uh, let me ask you a sort of foundational question. How do you define success? Mm-hmm. For success, I think, is defined in a personal way. So if you're um, a ballet dancer, then, you know, maybe your income is not how you define your success, but your level of performance. And if you're someone in the financial world, then maybe it'll be through your income. So success is defined by a very personal metrics. If you're a stay-at-home mom, it's that you're able to be your best self for your kids every day. So that's how I would define it. Just curious, as an aside, how would you define it for you? For myself? Um, I I hope... uh, to be successful by contributing to others in, in uh, the greatest way possible I can in, in this lifetime. That's my goal. It sounds like the Buddhism did rub off on you. I remember when Buddha Bob talked about bodhisattvas and introduced that concept. And that what that concept means is that some people who are born with a unique intention to help other people. Um, I remember when he taught that class, I, I think I cried and I just thought that's that's what I want. So is that when you cried, were you thinking, oh, that's describing my internal inclination or were you crying thinking I would love to have that aspiration? No, I was crying thinking that's so beautiful and that's what I want. That's what I want to to do. That's what I want to be. Because I, I find the bodhisattva ideal to be like awesome, I guess, the, the idea that, that you, you know, you are here to serve other people. But I... Uh, I don't feel that way. I, w- I don't feel that way to the extent that I w- I would like. Mm-hmm. Do you struggle with that? Or I you don't, seem maybe but I don't think it matters, more, honestly. You, be- you don't? Because you're already contributing. Like what you're doing right now, what you've been doing in your writing, everything that you're doing is uplifting other people. So it doesn't matter whether you feel like you're doing it or not because you're doing it. Uh, yeah, I guess. It's just that I see the self-interest in so much of what I do that I'm not mm-hmm. sure that I... I keep I keep uh, pushing you off off no. off your um your your conversational target, but uh, here we go. I do I I feel like um I I get that that the outcome of a lot of what I do is good for other people, but I just don't know that my my internal compass is set at altruism all the time. I think that's that's okay, and also there's there's a certain thing that we are who we are, and. The way we are is a gift, you know? And so sometimes we don't need to fight against, for example, self-interest. There's nothing wrong with being self-interest. That's also a very protective mechanism so that you can be your best, right? If we are constantly working against your self-interest, maybe you wouldn't be able to make as Mm -hmm. much impact. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes the way you've been designed is just perfect. You know, I the, the other thing I sort of take comfort in, one of the things I like about Buddhism, and not to be sectarian, I mean, I I don't think... Close listeners will know that my view on Buddhism is not that it's a religion, but that it's something to do. It's mm-hmm. a training, a series mm-hmm. of like sort of mental exercise for the for the brain and the mind. Um, and if you want to be gooey about it, you could also say the heart. Um, uh, I think that that you can over time train yourself 
to boost your inclination toward mm-hmm. altruism yes. and uh, generosity, compassion, all of those things. I think that's what's sort of incredibly exciting about Buddhism. That's absolutely what the research suggests, too. Right. I mean, that's been one of your areas of focus. Yeah, absolutely. So people have done compassion training. I mean, we did a seven-minute loving-kindness meditation intervention at Stanford and found that in seven minutes, people um, were able to feel closer to strangers. And it wasn't just us asking them, hey, do you feel closer to strangers? We used computerized tasks. So we were measuring their automatic responses so they couldn't control them. It was sort of their um, subconscious kind of inclination. And we could could tweak how how close they felt to others in just seven minutes of loving kindness. And then there's much longer research studies, seven, eight weeks of compassion training. And you see that people get up for someone who's on crutches and are more likely to get up and offer them their seat. So it's very powerful that these trainings can do. And and when you say loving kindness or compassion intervention or training, you're just you're talking about a kind of meditation where you sort of systematically send good mm-hmm. vibes to people um, internally. Uh, and yeah. that over time can actually change your external behavior. Absolutely right. Yep, it's pretty cool. I mean, I I've been open about this. I mean, my it's it's um it's pretty it's a little gooey and uh, syrupy and saccharine at first, especially mm-hmm. for somebody uh, like me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the science and there's a lot more, uh, and obviously you have a much firmer handle on this than I do. But uh, there's a lot more uh, on top of what you just uh, described that mm-hmm. really does suggest it's good for you, your own yeah. personal health, but also can change your behavior in the world. So yeah. I'm I'm fully on board, and and I often I I, I believe that I. And I think this may be something that we see more of in the future. I oh, wish yeah. there was as much hype around compassion or whatever you want to call it. I call it just not being a jerk. I wish there was yeah. as much hype around not being a jerk as there is around this whole mindfulness thing right now. I do too. In fact, uh, Dr. Doty, the director of our center, and I are writing an op-ed on this exact topic. Um, but it, the, the loving kindness meditations and compassion meditations are really powerful. In fact, when I ran the study with these Stanford students, we'd have Countless students walking in, you know, their obligatory psychology credit um, that they had to get was through these studies that we ran. And remember one guy just sitting in there doing the loving kindness meditation, which involves, and Sharon Salzberg, I know, has just recently been on the show, and so she maybe have, may have described it. She collaborated with us. The first part of the meditation involves um, feeling love coming to you from people that love you. So you imagine people that love you around you, and you feel filled with that love, and then you generate it outward mm. to others. And uh, so we're in this room watching the participant in the other room through a one-way mirror just to make sure everything's going according to plan. Sometimes they'll bring in a hamburger and just start eating yeah. it, and then you just, you're just you just like, okay, experiment over. That but would anyway. have been me in college. <laughs> I have to do this experiment. But anyway, carry on. And this guy was all of a sudden – and I could hear them too. And all of a sudden this guy in the other room has got his earphones on. He's meditating. He goes – Oh, yeah. <laughs> he just loved it, you know. So these meditations are also very nurturing. You know, they can be very, very fulfilling. More so than spending an hour on social media comparing your uh, lifestyle to others. Um, yep. <laughs> so so uh, I, I keep doing this too, but let's get back to the questions that I had and written down here on my little handy-dandy uh, cheat sheet about your book, The Happiness Track. So I asked you to define success. Um, the other thing I wanted to get you to define is happiness. Mm-hmm. Happiness. What is happiness? That's an excellent question. And again, I think a very personal one. But if um, we all know when we feel at our best, and it's a very intangible thing. But scientists have tried to hack at it and see what is it that it is. So 
happiness in scientific terms has been divided into two types. One is hedonic happiness, which is basically the pleasure of the senses of sex, drugs, rock and roll, uh, food, money, material things, a new car, like all those things that people get excited about. But when you look at the brain, the happiness, um, that level of excitement comes in a short burst that then dissipates very quickly, which is why you'll have a piece of chocolate cake and then You'll want another piece. Yes, yes. Right? I already talked to you about my time with cocaine. It's a very similar <laughs> Exactly situation. right. Yeah. Exactly right. So that's the hedonic happiness, mm-hmm. which is great. It's the fun in our lives. And then there's another form of happiness that is um, called eudaimonic happiness. And these are our Aristotelian terms, by the way. But then the eudaimonic happiness is that happiness derived from a sense of purpose, of service, something greater than yourself. For some people, that takes the form of spirituality, religion, um, anything that brings you beyond the self, uh, and that may involve relationships. So we also see if we look at research on happiness, the greatest predictor of happiness is positive social relationships with other people and altruism. So when you look at people's uh, the inflammation levels in people's bodies, depending on what type of happiness they prioritize in their life. People with hedonic happiness only who prioritize that, who are more focused on the pleasurable aspects of life, actually have as high inflammation levels as people in very high-stress situations. Mm. And on the contrary, we see that people with um, who, who value eudaimonic happiness above other things, who have a life um, characterized by a greater sense of purpose, of service, of meaning, um, they actually have very low levels of inflammation. Now, that could also come from the fact that that, you know, living a, a high pleasure lifestyle, maybe with lots of alcohol and other things can increase inflammation. But even when um, controlling for those things, we see that somehow those two types of happiness have very different impact on our health, but also on our longevity. So individuals who live a life characterized by compassion, for example, um, end up um, actually being buffered uh, from the negative impact of stressful situations and living longer. So that's really interesting research that's been repeatedly shown. There it is, the self-interested case for not being a jerk right there. Uh, Exactly. Right there. See, you can be self-interested and compassionate at the same time. In fact, I would say, I would argue, and this is from personal experience and and from the research, that altruism and compassion are some of the greatest secrets to happiness Mm -hmm. and the the, uh, best kept secrets to happiness because I don't think everybody really understands it profoundly. Um, And and. So it is, in a sense, both self-interested and other-interested. But there's one interesting study that shows that if you do altruistic acts with a selfish intent, you don't actually mm. reap the benefits uh, <laughs> psychologically and, and health-wise. So that's interesting. If you donate in order to get your name on a plaque, it may not may not benefit you as much. Interesting. Yeah, really interesting. So, but, but what about um, compassion, generosity? I use sort of compassion to, to, yeah. to, as a blanket term for, you know, not being a jerk in lots of ways, you know, generosity, mm-hmm. empathy, uh, compassion, um, be, taking joy in other people's achievements, et cetera, et cetera, as, as, a, as a whole bucket of kind of good stuff. Is all of that um, a hindrance in a competitive world, especially in the, in the uh, professional sphere? Well, research suggests no. Assuming you don't let yourself be t- be taken advantage of or be a doormat, um, 
if you are a kinder person, if you're a very collegial person, someone who goes out of their way to help other people, you will actually generate much greater loyalty. People will like you more. They will be more willing to help you. If you're a, a leader, you'll, like I said, have more loyalty, less turnover. But if you're a colleague too, people are much more likely to help you in the future. So one of the examples I give is, um, you know, some of us have been had the good fortune of having a mentor at some point in our life who has gone out of their way to help us with no interest to them. And if you, maybe you can call someone like that to mind. Yeah. So if you think back to that person, if they called you today and said, hey, um, I have a favor to ask you, wouldn't you just drop everything to help them? Yeah. Yeah. That's how it is. So that's what it is. So when you're the kind of person who is there for other people, who's compassionate, who's empathic, who's helpful, um, you're actually going to do better than that person who elbows everyone out of the way and, um, you know, thinks only about them themselves. And if you, um, you know, Adam Grant's made a great case for this in his book, Give and Take, which yeah, is one of my favorite book. books of all times. Yep. And again, this does assume that you have the skill not to let yourself be taken advantage of, you know, I'm not saying that. Um, but um, yeah, c- kindness is really the way to go. All right. Um, and in fact, I mean, there's an example, I, if you want me to give a, a longer example about that. Yes. Yes. I, the, mic, the floor is yours. <laughs> well, I write about this in um, in my book, The Happiness Track. I interviewed uh, an investment banker. I think he was a um, managing director. And when he got there, he was really surprised because everyone else at his level, they wouldn't even say hello to him in the hall. It was such a dog-eat-dog, such a crushing atmosphere. People were trying to steal each other's clients, take credit for each other's work. It was That was the atmosphere that was encouraged. And it was it was terrible. I remember when he first took the job and he was like, I can't believe this place. But he's not that kind of guy. He's um, from the Midwest from, and he's very, um, he's just a really friendly person who doesn't, he doesn't treat people badly. And he'd look around and see his colleagues really abusing the um, younger staff, um, the associates and the, um, and, and so forth, the, the, the vice presidents that, that were working for them. And they'd make them come in on Sunday night and work all the way through Monday morning for something that wasn't even due Monday morning, and then make them stay through, through that day as well. So he just thought that was really wrong. And so he knew that he couldn't do anything about the atmosphere there, but he could definitely decide how he was going to treat the people working for him. So that's what he did. And he ended up treating them really well. And in fact, bringing them into client meetings, helping them do stuff they would never do otherwise, giving them responsibility to present to the clients, because that's just the way he was. That's just the way he is. And um, soon he started winning some of the biggest deals that that firm had had. His colleagues started coming to him and saying, what are you doing? And also, the other thing is that all of the younger staff they could bid on who they would work with. So usually they would just bid on the person who was most likely to be the biggest winner um, because they were going to be treated badly no matter who they went to. Now everybody wanted to work with him. And so the, the other MDs would come up to him and say, what are you doing? But but you said at the beginning that when he got there, the other people at his level, I was assuming yeah. managing directors, MDs, wouldn't talk to each other because they were too busy like stealing each other's clients and yeah. taking credit for each other's work. What did he do when others did that to him? Did he not retaliate? No, he didn't retaliate. But I think he just didn't – there was nothing he could do. No one was even talking to him. But what he could do is he created his own his own culture with the people that work for him. And he ended up being more successful than anyone in that firm, um, which was really interesting. But the proposition of uh, sort of a compassionate stance, a giving stance yeah. uh, in the professional sphere is not that you should allow somebody – if one of his oh. fellow MDs had – trespassed against him in some way yeah what's the move if you're you know trying not to be a jerk in that position how do you not be a doormat what do you do well 
that's also where self-compassion and self, you know, self-respect comes into play. So being compassionate in no way means that you uh, don't have that same amount of respect and compassion for yourself. So I would say if that kind of thing happens, you have to do something about it. There's no doubt about it. Um, but it, that didn't happen to him. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Let's get back to your book. One of the things I think is interesting is you, you sort of lay out the myths of success, mm -hmm. uh, the things that we believe that we need in order to be successful that are actually wrong. Can you so talk about some of these? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the misconceptions that we have is that we can't have success without stress. So we'll see. And this is what we see all around us. People are over caffeinating, waiting till the last minute to get things done, over scheduling themselves. And there's this sense that the only way that I can be productive if, if, is if I fuel my life with this hardcore adrenaline. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing um, a high level of burnout, because what we're actually doing is we're burning through our energy really, really fast. And that's why when you come home at the end of the day, people are completely exhausted and wiped out from sitting at their desk all day. It doesn't make any sense. And yet it does make sense because if you're constantly tapped into your fight or flight response, into that adrenaline filled stress, high stress, um, response, then you actually are um, taxing so many different parts of your body. You're taxing your immune system. You're taxing your um, attention and memory. You're, you're taxing your entire body is mobilized to fight, but it can't do that on a chronic permanent basis. And that's why we're seeing so much exhaustion, but also stress-related diseases that are really cropping up. Um, and again, Stress is great to get you through a deadline and so forth in a short term. So you're not saying no stress because I was about no. to jump in and say I, I need some stress. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, it's fantastic to get you over the you know the, the street if there's a car coming at you. It's great to um, motivate you to get through that deadline. Again, if you have surgery, it, the stress response is what helps you heal faster. So it's really good in those cases. But if you activate it chronically and all the time, you're wearing yourself out. And that's really um, something that I... I really hope people can understand because in particular, let's take caffeine, for example. I mean, caffeine is a favorite of, of most people. But um, if we are constantly... I can't have it, by the way. Okay. It makes me panicky. Yeah. Well, if we have caffeine, um, 
like so let's say you're really tired and you have caffeine so you can keep going. What are you doing? You're not really you're maybe it'll help you keep going, but you're just keep taxing a nervous system that needs to rest and you're ignoring that rest um, that your need for rest. And you do that every day over and over and over. You're really wearing out your system. You're wearing out your body. But we have a very natural ability also to um, to relax at night. But a lot of people come home at night and then they need to take a Xanax or they need to take an Ambient because they can't sleep, because they're hyped, because they're working on fight or flight, adrenaline, mm-hmm. um, you know, high stress, high caffeine mode all day. So we're, what we're doing to our body, I mean, one analogy that I heard once that I think is fantastic, it's like taking a frozen pizza, sticking it in the microwave, then put it back in the freezer and then put it back in the microwave. That's what we're doing with our system when we're having, you know, for example, caffeine all day and then have alcohol at night just so you can be able to rest and relax and back and forth and back and forth. You know, again, nothing wrong with any of these things in small doses, but if we're using them to totally hijack our system one way or the other, what are we doing? What are we doing to ourselves? Um, but if you look in nature, or if you look at your child, like we have a very natural energetic response. We have an, a natural way to have energy and then to a natural response to rest and relax at night. So the classic example you hear about all the time is like the antelope running in the savanna and being chased by whatever, a tiger or lion. So in that moment, she feels stress. And there's a professor at Stanford uh, who wrote... Um, Robert Sapolsky, he wrote, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. He's fantastic. He um, has, I heard him say once, you're only supposed to feel stress five minutes of your life right before you die. The idea being that if you're this um, antelope in the savanna and you're being chased, you have this high stress response, you can get away from your predator as fast as you can. And then what are the things that happen? Either you die at the hands of your predator or you get away from your predator and then you relax completely. Um, and they don't then go on, keep stressing and worrying about is the, you know, and so forth. And, and the reason that they relax completely is so their body can restore ourselves themselves. So, you know, I've been talking for a long time to make this point that we need to find, um, tap back into our own ability to restore ourselves so that we are then naturally energetic to keep going. But let me play devil's advocate. Yeah. I am not an antelope in any way, and yeah. nor am I a zebra. And uh, I was raised by a father who <laughs> bequeathed the, the motto, the price of security is insecurity to yeah. me. Um, and I still believe, you know, I'm, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool meditator and practicing yeah. Buddhist, and I still believe in what I call constructive anguish. You know, my yeah. wife and I have long conversations not infrequently about, you know, what is the future arc of each other's career. And, um, and you know, there's a certain amount of, uh, I mean, there's creativity and pleasure in those conversations, but there's a certain amount of sort of worry that comes with that kind of strategizing. Mm-hmm. And I feel, and I could be wrong, and I would be happy to be corrected on this, that that, is, that, that falls into what I said before, constructive anguish, that it makes sense. Mm-hmm. You need some stress and some worry and some anxiety mm-hmm. in order to be on the game, just not too much. Absolutely. And as an emotional researcher, I would completely agree. I mean, all the different emotions that we have help motivate us. So if you have that, you know, certain anguish or anxiety that comes up around planning a career, for example, that helps motivate you to have these conversations that might lead you to have a greater insight. Um, Even negative emotions like anger can motivate us to do something about a situation to correct it, for example. So all of the the emotions have their purpose. And I I think you're absolutely right. I wish all of my podcast guests would say, you're absolutely right, all the time. Um, <laughs> let's keep going with these myths of success. What are the other myths of success that you think we buy into? Well, another myth of success is how 
to be our most innovative, creative self. So especially these days, everyone's always trying to think about what's the best way to disrupt my industry, to have these breakthrough solutions to existing problems, blah, blah, blah. And if you look at CEOs across the board and, um, and across industries and internationally, when they're asked, what is the number one thing you look for in an incoming um, employee, they say creativity above everything else. Mm. And so, but a lot of people go about trying to be creative by learning absolutely everything there is to know about their field, reading every latest book, every blog, keeping updated, really focused on their field because that's going to help them come up with solutions um, because they're such experts. And yet, if you look at when we are our most creative in terms of when our brain is most capable of coming up with insights, it's actually when we're being idle, when we're not doing anything. For example, um, it's the proverbial idea in the shower. It comes to you in the shower or when you just lie down to go to sleep and all of a sudden you have an aha moment right in that dozy place before sleep. It's when our brain is in delta mode. And um, I don't even know what that means, but, but uh, yeah, I like it, the sound. It, the delta, it delta is when our brain is in that, basically that daydreamy space. Mm-hmm. Also a great band name potentially. Yes. <laughs> And, but if you think about it, these days, we could go an entire day without daydreaming. In the past, maybe you'd stand and wait for the bus and you'd have nothing to do but space out, um, let your mind wander, or you'd be sitting, um, standing in line at the grocery store and doing the same thing. But these now days- Now you're on your phone. Yeah, we're on their phone. I mean, actually, it can be sometimes from the moment you wake up. I think um, 35% or more of people um, have their phone right next to their bed. So first thing- as you wake up, it's what you look at. You could go an entire day without ever accessing that space that you used to go to a lot as a child. So children are some of the most creative individuals in our society because they spend a lot of time in that place. They create castles in the sky. Mm-hmm. They turn you know a bunch of cushions into a fort. Um, they are in a place of inventive genius, actually. You think my son's in Delta mode when he puts his mouth on the lid? <laughs> I don't know what he's imagining uh, that is, but it could be. <laughs> the pain of his parents. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that we get other insights from this is also um, I've interviewed some really creative individuals for the chapter that I wrote on creativity and the happiness track. And um, another thing that comes up a lot is diversification. So these are people who read completely outside their field or do things that are completely different from what they would usually do. And that helps them to actually see the forest rather than being stuck in the trees. It helps them build patterns. I'm actually writing an article right now for Harvard Business Review and interviewing some, again, incredibly creative um, leaders. And um, they are they are telling me the same thing, that they go and they they get involved and and learn about things that are completely different from what they're doing, the problem they're working on, and they find the solutions elsewhere. Mm. Um, and we're seeing that again and again, even in the research. Um, there's a platform called um, Innocentive that asks, so big companies like NASA will put a problem down. They'll be like, we want to build an engine that does this and this with this kind of fuel. And a study that was conducted on that platform saw that the people who are most likely to come up with solutions to the problems are not people that are directly in that field. Let's say it's a biochemistry um, problem. The per- maybe the person who's more likely to come up with insight into that problem is someone who's um, in, in mechanical engineering or something um, outside of that field. So it's really interesting. I mean, it's partially why open sourcing, I would imagine, has been yeah. so successful in so many areas. Um, Absolutely. And the third thing, and I just want to no, add no, that no, because going, sorry. I want to add it because it ties into, you, you, know what, you, know, you're, you know, what you're sharing about meditation is the third thing that um, these people have been sharing with me is making time for silence in their lives. So... Um, the two people I interviewed for that chapter in particular, one of them is Myron Scholes, who's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, a longtime meditator. 
And the other person is Pico Ayer, who's an award-winning writer and with the New York Times and Time Magazine. Myron meditates, and uh, Pico takes retreats, silent retreats. And he says, I'm a current events journalist, and I take time completely away from everything. He also says, when I come back, really nothing much has changed. Mm-hmm. But he has a lot greater insight, and his, his TED Talk, his writings are, are very profound, and they come from a different place because he says, I've, made, I've taken a break from the Times Square of my head. So but let me just get back to something you said at the beginning. Uh, so the myth we're talking about here is the idea that we think we need to be on all the time in order, uh, just in order to succeed. But you're actually saying that if, if we allow ourselves to do nothing, either in silence or daydreaming, uh, we will be more creative and innovative. Correct. But and you were talking about, to back to my favorite term, uh, the delta mode, this idea that you know ideas come to us in the shower or right before mm-hmm. we're going to sleep. But I thought the deal was that in order for that idea to come to you in the shower or as you're falling asleep, you need to do a reasonable mm-hmm. amount of work. Yes. Uh, so you need to uh, do a bunch of research uh, and then drop it. Or like Don Draper says in Mad Men, when asked how he comes up with his slogans, it was that he would work, work, work all day and then go to the movies. Yes. And then the idea would come. So it's not just as simple as like, you know, Be giving yourself permission to, uh, yeah. to be lazy. That's absolutely right. So you do need to have um, that training in your your field, whatever it is. And it reminds me of a story of the the Beatles. Um, uh, apparently, um, George Harrison was they. You know, I think you. I don't know if you know, but the Beatles went to India and they had a oh, guru, yeah. Maharishi yes. Mahesh Yogi, yes. and they yes. learned. You know, founder the T- of TM. TM. Yeah, right. So they learned how to meditate, and um, and one day George asked um, Maharishi, his guru. You know, I get these songs coming in my head when I meditate. What should I do? And Maharishi just said, you open your eyes, write the song down, and close your eyes, keep meditating. <laughs> but it's not surprising that these insights, I've certainly had creative insights come during meditation too. It's just whenever your mind is, you're allowing your mind to be at rest, and all of a sudden you're you're getting these insights. I, to, I mean, I, I when I go on long retreats, uh, I am filled with ideas. I mean, I, I'm constantly having to write things down on tiny scraps of paper that I find near the kitchen or whatever when I'm on retreat. It, it It is like almost embarrassing how much stuff is coming up. A lot of it turns out later to be complete baloney, but, but <laughs> some percentage of it, I mean, huge ideas for my book or um, mostly actually around the book yeah. come, come in those contexts. Um, so let, let's keep going with your myths of, uh, of success. One of them, I believe is that uh, when you talk about myths of success is that uh, that we believe we need to sort of kind of be our own toughest critic? That's right. So we have this sense that, you know, self-criticism leads to self-improvement. You know, you've got to see your flaws in the face and so forth. Again, here we there is a misconception. So when you look at the research, individuals who engage in a lot of self-criticism are actually less resilient in the face of failure and less likely to grow from their mistakes. So, and those who are more likely to actually be much more resilient and have less anxiety and depression in the face of failure and to grow are individuals who engage in self-compassion, which sounds like a soft term, but there's a lot of hard data to back up that uh, that term, self-compassion. Self-compassion is, in, in brief, it's the ability to treat yourself as you would a friend. And I'll give you an example. Imagine you're training for a marathon, your first marathon, you've been, you know, training for months and months, and you're... You're doing it, you're running, and you trip and fall. And someone on the sideline says, you are such a loser. You think you're a runner? Like, there's no way you can do this. And then another person on the other side says, everybody falls. It's no big deal. Get right back up. You can do this. 
That's the difference between self-criticism and self-compassion in your own mind. Self-criticism basically is self-sabotage. And if you look, and I'm really that metaphor that I'm giving is um, a reflection of the research. But don't we need some sort of internal cattle prod? Um, I, I, mean, I yeah. write about this in my book that you, you, you need some kind of get off the couch, yes. uh, overcome inertia, internal mm-hmm. impulse, no? Yeah. And self-compassion is, it doesn't necessarily mean letting yourself off the hook. So it's like a mom who's trying to get her child to eat vegetables. It's, you know, it might not like it, but that's the best thing for it. So self-compassion does not mean uh, taking, leave, you know, giving, making excuses for yourself or to be lazy at all. It's, it's simply, not lowering standards. No, it's not lowering standards. It's basically the ability to treat yourself like a friend in the situation where you're failing or made a mistake. The ability to say some, three things in particular. One, the ability to remember the universality of it. Everyone makes mistakes, period. Remembering that. The second is the ability to um, be mindful around what what's happening to you. So rather than catastrophizing and going into all these emotions like, I'm such a loser, there's no way that I can run, what am I even thinking, I'm so not, you know, we can go into a big drama about it, or you can be mindful about it, and uh, just kind of watch those emotions come up and not necessarily dive deep into the drama. Um, so and those are, and the, and the third is the ability to treat yourself like a friend. So to be able to say the things to yourself that you would to someone very close to you to whom this has happened. Right. Is, it doesn't mean, you, 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 the way you treat a real friend is you tell them the truth, but you don't have to like lacerate them. Exactly. So um, I think we've worked through three of your myths of success. What have I missed? Something around energy management? I mean, or yeah, the energy kind of management. Yeah. This is uh, a really interesting one. So if you ask Americans to define happiness, they're going to define it with high-intensity positive emotions like excitement, thrill. Uh, and that's why you'll hear people say, I'm so excited this is going to happen. Mm. And those are the words we use. If you ask East Asian cultures, Korea, Japan, China, to define happiness, what do you think they use? Well, this is, I know the answer, A, because I read your book, and B, because I'm steeped in this stuff, but it's going to be uh, contentment, calm, peace. Exactly. Yeah. Low intensity, positive. Mm-hmm. So all are positive, but there's this difference in intensity. Now, there's nothing wrong with uh, the American view. I mean, we love to have fun. We love excitement. That's some part of what we like. The, the, the trap we fall into, though, is that we believe that we have to live in a high intensity mode all the time. So whether it is our the fact that we embrace this high adrenaline lifestyle, which I described earlier, is extremely taxing on our body. Or even in our um, in our leisure time that we embrace is high intensity at all times. The body registers both as a stress response. The mm. body registers both as something that's actually quite taxing. So what I recommend is energy management. People are always talking about time management. You know, there's only so many time management apps and to-do list apps you can get and that are going to really help you. There's not much you can do about that, but your energy is something you can do a lot more about. So here's some just simple take-home points that people can do. For one distribute your day along high intensity versus low intensity activities. For example, um, you have to prepare a presentation that's going to require a lot of concentration. Do that in that first hour. And then the second hour, do something that's less intense, like rearranging your desk, entering data, filing things, whatever it is. And then altering like that, alternating like that throughout the day can really help you. That's good. A, manage your energy so that you have a little bit of rest. Those, mm-hmm. you know, that entering data type of um, activity doesn't require as much energy. It allows you to recuperate and And it allows you to tap back into your creative energy because, as we mentioned earlier, part of your brain can be in that relaxation mode. So it has a kind of – there are a lot of benefits to doing this. And the other thing is to remember you don't need to be in high-intensity mode all the time. So let's say next thing you're going to do is tackle your email. Well, 
that might not be the best time for you to like over caffeinate yourself and get all jazzed up. You can do this and relax and try to make this a calm moment for yourself so that you can manage your energy. So I would say valuing calm more and and, and engaging in calming activities to balance out um, all of the high energy activities we do and also to help us manage the energy. So at the end of the day, you're not completely worn out. Do you, you had some really good stuff in the book about email management. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that? I find that me, uh, as I was listening to you speak about high intensity versus low intensity, um, managing that during the day, I, I realized that I do a terrible job of that. And also that, you know, pruning my inbox and getting it down to zero and like, mm-hmm. Just ramming through all that stuff is actually a source of constant stress for me. Absolutely. And research shows that when we open our inbox, start working on it, our stress uh, response is activated. And the other thing with email that's really interesting is that you're getting all this different kind of messages thrown at you. So in the past, we would have gone through our day with maybe a couple of intense experiences. Like maybe you get in a spat, spat with your spouse in the morning, and then you have some kind of uncomfortable interaction with a colleague and maybe you're stuck in traffic in the evening so you have a couple of uh, disagreeable unpleasant experiences now you can open your inbox and within the span of 30 minutes you can go through 25 emails that all elicit different emotions it's like a bee in a jar it's like you know (laughs) one email says you're getting a promotion the other you're in a creative difference with a a partner and the third is you know whatever Uh, and then the third is your your girlfriend's baking up with you exactly so it's unbelievable that you roller coaster of emotions that your the inbox can do to us and then think about it if we have our smartphones and we're checking email all day long you know you could be finally you're home finally you're with your child or with your spouse finally you get those few precious moments to be with your family but you check your phone you get this unpleasant email from your work or wherever and all of a sudden the whole moment is ruined so we need to really establish boundaries and i don't think we figured out how to do that yet um but it's really important for us to notice what's impacting the state of our mind and what what are we what choices are we making that are impacting the state of our mind in this you know in 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 our daily activities and our interactions with technology so what do you do do you at night not check email my husband and I actually decided to stop checking email at 7 p.m., um, which we did consistently for a while. And it was actually really great because it really allowed us to honor um, honor that time together. It sounds like it ended, though. Well, it did end, especially with the baby, because now that we have the baby, sometimes the work hours are at Shifted, night after right, he's yeah, right, right. gone to bed. But um, we do very much try to not have our phones around when we're together. That's something that we try not to do unless there's some emergency. But... Usually there's not such a life-threatening emergency that you need your phone. So I'll often leave it at home even. On the, and on the weekends, is really precious time where we actually try to not have our computers on if possible. Another area where I'm terrible. Um, the other thing is, I mean, you're seeing a lot of kids really interested in just being on their screen rather than being with their external world. And for kids, especially the world is a place of wonder. It always has been for all of the generations prior. Um, and now by limiting them to this screen because we're doing it and so they're feeling very very compelled by the screen because they see their parents are like so enamored with it (laughs) that maybe we're creating a little bit of imbalance again this is personal opinion not research-based but i would i'm trying we're striving to model something more balanced for our son who will inevitably be on a screen you know because that's just how things are going to be but we're trying to model a balance 
but my kid's been doing this thing lately where he picks up anything that's like got a cord, like a headphone or even just a cord for the lamp, and he says hello into it. And he realizes <laughs> it's because I use headphones when I'm talking on the phone. And I'm always on the phone or, you know, taking meetings around the house and he sees me doing that. So, like, he'll just pick up, a, you know, shoestrings and say hello into it. <laughs> That's cute. It's cute, but it's kind of sad at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, you've been a great guest. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for these awesome questions. Uh, just a totally random question. Do you have a slight accent? I do. I'm from France. Ah. Um, I was born and raised in France. My mom is originally from Ger- Germany and then grew up in France. Where do you grow up in France? In Paris. Because you've you you've got that accent down to like just a taste. I don't really hear much of a French. Oh, well, my accent. dad is um, British American, okay. so I was raised in English, French, and German, and uh, and then I moved to the U.S. to attend um, college when I was seventeen. So and then I've been here except for two years in China since. So you speak English, French, German, and Mandarin. Mandarin and Spanish are conversant, but the the other three, I was really fortunate. I'm trilingual because of how my parents raised me. Yeah. Wow. But I guess I have an accent in each one. <laughs> hey, that's your inner critic. Uh, well, such a pleasure having you on. Thank I really you appreciate so it. Much, Dan. Really appreciate really, it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, as always, to the producers of the show: Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, and Dan Silver. You can hit me on Twitter at Dan B. Harris anytime you like. If you liked the episode today and you want to hear more like it, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and leave a review. Thank you for that, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, Uh, You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. 
and you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.